0: Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them, hosted by Dr. Kathy Grace and Dr. Kenya Wolf with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Kathy Grace and Kenya Wolf, and we are so happy to be back today with Ed's Up. Uh, we are very, very happy to have with us today Ellen Galinsky, and she is the president of Families and Work Institute. It was founded in 1989 for the purpose of addressing the most pressing problems in work life, family life, and children, adolescents, development. And uh, Ellen has written many, many books, articles, and she is Full of information, and is getting ready to release yet another book shortly. So, Ellen, what led you to develop the institute and maintain a focus on the changes families have navigated throughout the last several decades?
2: I practice a form of research called civic science, which means that the science that I do is co-created by listening, listening to the listening to people about what are the issues that they're facing, and then helping us design studies, uh, participating in the studies, and then helping us figure out what to do with the results, how to turn them to action. I had written a couple of books. One was Six Stages of Parenthood. Another one was The Preschool Years. And in the course of those books, I listened a lot to parents. And parents kept telling me a story of feeling that they were the only person struggling with managing their work and family life. They felt that all the other people who were working were managing it. Somehow, theirs was the only kid who wasn't getting ready in the morning. Who were throwing peas at each other at the kid across the uh, dining room table, whatever. You know, <laughs> refusing to wear the outfit that they had selected the night before, whatever it was. But I was hearing these same stories from everyone. There was this secret thing that was happening, and and this was in the seventies and eighties. There was this secret thing that was happening about work and family life that everybody thought was an individual problem, except for that everyone had it. So it was a communal problem. And in hearing that conversation, I knew that it was a time for a new organization that could address the issues of the changing family, changing community, changing workplace all together because they're usually seen as very separate spheres, but our lives Don't separate them, really. And I wanted to be the one who did it. And I joined forces with a colleague, Dana Friedman, who was at the conference board at the time and was also listening to similar kinds of stories. And we created the Families and Work Institute. Families is first in our name. Everybody says it's work and family, but everybody does that because we're so used to work and family as as a description. But in our case, families come first. And so families came first in our name. And our purpose was to be responsive to the changing world, to keep listening, to keep asking questions, keep doing research that was co-created with the people for whom it was intended, and to bring about change that way. I mean, our purpose wasn't to do academic research that would sit on a shelf. Our purpose was to do research that was highly rigorous academically, but that wouldn't sit on a shelf that would be able to be used in action. So we always had our tagline research to action.
0: As someone who often writes for academia, and I feel excited when I see three people have read it, <laughs> your work is so accessible to parents, to um, to politicians who are making policy. How did this come about? Can you tell us a little bit more? Because I think that we need more of this, definitely, this action.
2: Well, I'll start with how you figure out how to do a study so that it will be heard. And and I'm actually going to use the study that we created in the late 80s, 90s on parental leave. There were states that were passing parental leave. There was a huge controversy about it, and it was called parental leave, not family leave. There was a huge controversy about it because businesses thought it would destroy business. Literally, the, the whole economy of the United States would go <laughs> plunging down. And there were just, it was a very, very divisive issue. But because there were natural experiments happening, states were passing laws, I wanted to be able to study those laws to see what difference did they actually make for business and for families. So to do that, first, I had to persuade Someone to fund me. That wasn't easy. It took, finally, I was at a conference with um, June Zeitlin from the Ford Foundation at the time. And we went on a walk at breakfast. I'd been talking to as many people as I could talk to. It's not, you have to get the funding first. And out of that breakfast, early morning walk, she said, I'll do it. And then we were off and running. The next thing that we, we did was we went to four states that had differed in the policy dimensions of the law that they passed. Some were longer leaves, some were shorter sleeves. One state had temporary disability insurance that helped pay for parents to be able to take it, or women in that case, because it was disability leave. And we went to them, and I don't know you could do that today because we're, we're less trusting, but we went through the governor of the state. They were Republicans. They were Democrats. And we asked them to convene a group of businesses and a group of Family advocates, and we went around the, and they hated each other. They really hated each other. We went around the get there. I was a really good idea on paper, but is this really what I want to do? <laughs> uh, it was, but we went around the room and we said, you know, you opposed this law, you supported it. What you have it now, so it's over in terms of whether you're going to have it or not. But what do you want to know about it? And out of that list of you know the adversaries, they actually had a common set of questions about. The way in which it worked, whether it harmed or helped business, whether it harmed or helped families, women separately from men too, because it was um, seen as a women's issue. Not that it was, but it was seen that way. And so we got a set of common questions and we went to those four states and we did a pre study and then we looked at what happened, you know, went back later and did a post study to see what had actually happened to their businesses. We had a representative group of businesses from the state. We had a representative group of parents from the state. It's always important for me to have rigorous samples and then had findings that it turned out to be very important in the policy debate. Our findings showed that it didn't make much of a difference for women. They did take off time paid or unpaid, whether it was legal or illegal. They, they biologically needed to take off time. They didn't take off very much time. It did make a difference, though, having temporary disability insurance, having some sort of wage replacement, which the state was Rhode Island that we looked at ma- at the time, mattered. But what it really mattered for was men. Men were much more likely to take time off when family leave was passed in their state. It didn't destroy businesses. My memory is that it was 92 of percent of businesses said that it didn't hurt them. And in fact, in some ways, it helped them retain good employees, which was exactly the opposite from what the business community was arguing. So it wasn't the magic pill that you know the advocates wanted, but it wasn't the destructive bomb that the business community field that it had. And that's, first of all, that study was questioned as partisan. So the next administration, the family, well, let me just say that family leave became the first Well, it was, it was a suspect when it came out. So the, the administration before, which was President Bush, the first, asked for our data to reanalyze. Now, I've had the data analyzed by two different people because I really didn't want any mistakes in it before we were going on on such a, you know, a hot fire issue. So, they didn't find any mistakes. I was really happy about that to make sure that we were rigorous. We were not being partisan. We, we told the truth. We, we shared the good parts and the bad parts of what the data said. So that mattered. It was now seen as a rigorous study. And I think it's always important to do the most rigorous research that you can do. On the other hand, when Bill Clinton became president, it was, they called and the, the day that the study came out, Hillary Clinton, she was the first lady of Arkansas at the time, called my office. Remember the days of pink slips? I'm sure you don't. It was a pink slip. You know what? It didn't mean you were fired. It was a telephone message. And someone named Hillary Clinton called you, said, <laughs> our receptionist. And I said, you should probably look at that name. You might be hearing it in the future. And um she called and I spoke to her personally. And she wanted to hear about the study. And we talked to them. And it became important in his decision when he was actually elected president because it didn't harm the business community. It became important as the first piece of legislation he wanted to, that he did actually pass in under his administration. It was important that it not do the harm that the business community had worried that it would do, genuinely worried. I'm not saying that they were horrible people, they were genuinely worried. And the advocates were the people who convinced him to take it on, but it was our study that made him feel that it was a win-win, potentially win-win Kind of piece of legislation. So that's an example of civic science. The civic science means that we had our ear to the ground, we were hearing what was going on, but we actually went out and we asked people what they wanted. To know in all of the studies, including the new book on adolescence, I started with adolescents, with teenagers, and I asked them actually from all over the world, not just the United States what do you want adults uh, to know about people your age? What should adults know? And if I'm going to talk to researchers, what should I be asking? And I ask them, if you had one wish to change the way people your age grow up, what would that wish be? I mean, I ask a lot of open-ended, you know, for me, tried and true questions. I always ask those questions uh, because I know that they get it, things that most people don't ask them and they can produce some novel findings. So if if I get claim for being an innovative researcher or ahead of the curve, it's really because I'm a good listener. Thank you, Mother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and so many things you brought to the field and to the public Thank that you. has to do with development. Uh, you're talking about sort of the new frontier you're getting ready to move into, which is of adolescence. But you have been extremely valuable and powerful in how you have promoted brain development through the development of executive functioning skills within little children. And some of those, just to remind us, self-regulation, problem-solving, focus. And one of the things that I've admired about your work is that you're able to share research in a very uh, understandable manner. And so if you were going to give any examples of games or activities that parents and or teachers could do for young children that would help start this development of essential life skills, Can you think of anything that our listeners might latch on to?
2: Yes. I mean, I want to go back a little bit and say how I got to the executive functions. It wasn't even a term that I knew much about. I was doing a study of youth, and I did a lot of Ask the Children studies. I was doing a study of youth, and I found too many kids were turned off by learning. So I was asking them to talk to me about learning, and I was getting kind of dead on arrival kids, like not peppy, not articulate. And I'm pretty good interviewer. So I'm used to being able to get people to talk to me who don't even necessarily want to talk. And so my question became, how do we keep the fire for learning burning in children's eyes? And then I went out to look at the research on early development across the academic spheres and began to see that there were this set of skills that are called executive functions. So before I give actual tips, I'd sort of like to find what they are. They had different names in different fields, uh, deeper learning now, you know, some people call them deeper learning, it depends on what they are, but they're underlying them are a core set of neurocognitive processes in the brain that, from my point of view, do four things. Most it's It's an umbrella concept that means that people can hold information in mind, it means use what you know, it means that they can think flexibly cognitive flexibility. It means that they can reflect, think about what they're thinking. And it means that they can use self-control or inhibitory control and not go on automatic, but do what they need to do to reach a goal because executive function skills are always goal-directed. Some people don't put reflection in as a core executive function skill. I do. It takes place in a different part of the brain in the default mode network versus the executive control network, but it's really integral to executive function to be able to pause for a moment and reflect. So I included in those core skills. So what can people do? Well, I think setting goals is something that people can do. So have your child make a plan. I'll use my own grandson here. He, like most kids his age, he's 11 is pretty addicted to using my daughter's word, not necessarily a term of science um, uh, to, he just loves games, loves playing games and it's hard for him to stop when he's playing games. Really has a hard time giving it up. So what we do is we make a media plan with him and he's, he sets a goal like, he says how long he'll have it. He says what his, he has something to look forward to when it's over. So he has a media plan, a plan of something that he wants to do, not so it doesn't become a deprivation. It becomes something that he's looking forward to. And he has agency and self control to be able to set the plan. Well, setting, setting a plan, setting goals are instrumental to executive function. Another one is to be able to focus. So there are lots of games you can play with kids to help them focus. Um, they can be things that you're doing with kids when they're having trouble focusing, like what would help you focus? You put a, put your cell phone on the table, turn it off. You know, you're able. This is a song that Kathy Hirsch-Pasick wrote once, uh, from Temple University, which is a kind of fun song that we sang at NAYC once, but th- they're games that have come down through the centuries, like Simon says. Like, mother, may I, like red light, green light. So, if you think about what happens in Simon Says, it's actually used as a measure called the head to toe, knee to shoulder measure that Megan McClellan used to measure executive function skills. The experimenter says, touch your head and then touch your toes and then touch your head and then touch your knee and then touch your shoulder. And then she says, okay. Now I'm going to, or he says, I'm going to be a little tricky and I'm going to say, touch your head. But uh, when I want you to touch your head, I want you to do the opposite and touch your shoulders, or I'm going to show you touching your head, but you should touch your your toes. Or you can say in the Simon Says game, don't do it unless I say Simon Says, you know, anyway, but you're asking kids to remember the rules, to think flexibly, to pause and not go into immediate action and to use self-control by playing those games. So when you're Waiting in, in the car when, you know, when you're on a car trip or when you're waiting for dinner to be ready and everybody's sick of waiting, you can play Simon says or any one of those games with little kids, mother may I red light, green light. Megan McClellan develops circle time games for red light, green lights. So it might be that it's red light, green lights go green light, red stop, but then you switch. So red means go and green means stop. So you're changing the rules. You can do yellow and purple, clap your hands for yellow and don't clap your hands when it's purple, but then clap your hands when it's purple and don't clap your hands when it's yellow. So you can see the sort of the pattern of how these games that have been passed down for eons, centuries, have been actually very useful in our own brain development.
0: Well, speaking of games, I know one of the things that I was excited to share with caregivers and parents is that there is an app that is helpful and gives a lot of great ideas for activities. Can you share a little bit about that app, Broom? Sure. Sure.
2: Well, I, let me just tell you a little bit about the wonderful history of room. Jackie Bezos of the Bezos Family Foundation is a close personal friend. And, um, I think she, we first met when Mind in the Making came out as a book and I spoke at the Aspen Institute. And then they invited me to Colorado to Aspen, uh, to come and speak. And I got to spend more time with her there. And she was saying that she was tired, what you just said of the academics who just have, you know, two or three articles that they might, read on something but not make it accessible to the public and uh, she wanted something that would be accessible to the public so uh, the foundation went through a process that ended up that I participated in every step of the way I was at the Families and Work Institute then and, um, and which came up with Vroom the idea of Vroom is Vroom Vroom you know sort of a go forward motion and the idea of Vroom was to take the things that you're already doing, everyday moments and turn them into brain, Jackie's term, brain building moments. And so for about three years, I and I led a team uh, at that time in creating tips. We wrote a thousand tips. Uh, yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> took three years. It was my Saturdays and Sundays for three years because I had another job. And eventually I just joined the foundation to merge together the work that we were doing with Room and Mind in the Making and then later brought Mind in the Making back out so that I could work on adolescence and continue to do research. But um but Room is uh, the Room is an app that gives you or their cards or there you can go on the website. Uh they're free, um they're easy to access. Um, You can do it by time of day, you can do it by activity, you can do it by age of child, you know, however you want to sort it. And it gives you everyday things to do in those moments that turn everyday moments into brain building moments. And um, there are more than a thousand tips to help you do that. And and they build executive function skills. The whole idea was to take the research behind mind in the making with the importance of executive function skills and turn it into action. I don't want to do research that just it's again, why I practice civic science. I don't want to do research. I love doing research. It's just so much fun for me, but I don't want to do it in a way that that isn't useful for other people. So in mind in the making in my new book, the breakthrough years at the end of every section, there are suggestions that they're never, you must do. There are always suggestions, but there are suggestions for things that you could do to turn this idea into action because I so strongly, and I think researchers do too, want news that you can use.
1: Well, you mentioned your new book. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you could share a little bit more about the title of the book, when it's going to be released and how you as a person maybe have grown as a result of your development of the civic science for this particular book and uh, if there's any, you know, words of wisdom you'd want to
2: share about that particular age group. So much, so much. Um, yes, I wanted Mind in the Making to grow up. After Mind in the Making was published, I followed my publisher to a new firm. Bob Miller was at Hyperion when I first met him. Then he went to Harper Collins. That's where Mind in the Making was published. And then uh, ultimately, he created Flatiron Books, which is where this book is. So when he landed at Flatiron, I had a plan to do two books. One was on adults and one was on adolescence. And we had thought, because I'd done so much research on the workforce and workplace, that we were going to focus on adults first, on executive function skills and adults. And that's what I'll do next. But it was February 5th, 2015. Bob wrote me an email and said, let's start with adolescence, which was so exciting to me. And although I knew a lot about development, although I knew a lot about what young people think, because I've been doing Ask the Children studies on a lot of issues with young people for years, not just on how they feel about their working parents, which was one study I did, how they feel about violence in schools and in their lives, which is another study. The one on learning turned into mind in the making, but been doing a series of those studies with young people. So I knew a lot about what they were thinking, but I really didn't know about the brain development of adolescents. So it was a deep learning journey for me to get you know, into the neuroscience of adolescence to understand the major theories and what had propelled the research to figure out which researchers I wanted to interview. But as always, I started with kids and asked them, as I told you, what they wanted to know. And the main thing that they said to me was, why do adults stereotype us? Why do adults not like teenagers? Why do people like cross to the other side of the street, if they see a bunch of us coming forward, you know, why do people make assumptions about me that aren't necessarily true? I'm not necessarily, I might look very grown up, so people think I'm a fast girl, but I'm not. And why are people making these kinds of assumptions about me? Those were the kinds of things that I heard, you know, look at us, one kid said, and from a focus, look at us, you know a group of very civically involved kids and yet people think negatively about us and um uh, so that really propelled the journey i don't want i want people to understand the development of adolescence in in a positive way in the way that i worked hard to have them understand the brain development of young children in the 90s and from then on through mind in the making so there are five things that i want people to know from uh, the breakthrough years, although there's a lot more, but there are five main things. And I'm in, into fives. It was sevens for light the making. Now it's fives. Um, I want them to understand adolescent development as a time that happens in every culture, that happens in every species, where young people begin to move away from their families. And it doesn't mean they're not close because kids are pretty close to their parents these days. I did not find, I measured the level in the nationally representative group of parents. I measured the level of conflict with parents and it's much less than people think it is. You know, the the, the storm and stress is, it's there, but it's not very frequent uh, in, in a nationally representative sample. But it's a time where they're beginning to figure out who they are, what they wanna do, whom they wanna be. What interests them? What doesn't interest them? And it's a time of learning, of discovery. It's a time where the brain is almost as plastic as in the early years. So it's a time of incredible promise. So the first thing I think I want people to understand is that our views of adolescence have been all on wake me up when it's over. (laughs) Everyone I tell I'm writing a book on adolescence, oh, God. (laughs) Oh, Yeah. Terrible time, psychotic, moral mind field. minefield. You know, those are the sorts of things that people said to me over the nine years that I was working on it. So I want them to understand this is a time of as much possibility as uh, an opportunity as the early years and understand adolescent development. The second thing that I want people un- to understand is that even though executive function skills and the life skills based on them are forming in the early years, they are consolidating in the adolescent years. It's a tremendously important period in the development of these skills. And we're not promoting them at home. We're not promoting them in school in the ways we should be. So that, you know, an example would be if I go in, I went into a class in Long Island, a classroom in Long Island, and there were a group of, a small group of kids discussing some legal argument, and they were working in small groups, and the teacher came called the teacher with a question and the teacher came over and they asked the question and they said, she said, well, how can you find out the answer? She didn't answer their question, which is research shows is really critical in promoting curiosity. And then I saw her walk over to another group of kids who are having trouble convincing each other how to frame an argument It was the pre-law class. It was an academic choice class for uh, in a high school uh, that was pre-law. And she said, well, you need to learn to make compelling arguments so that you can convince each other. So she was teaching them the skill of communication. She was teaching them the skill of problem solving in the other example. And these are things that we need to embed into everyday life for young children and for older children and not just think that it's like something that we do on the side. Yes, they're games that we can use to promote them, but in the ways that we talk to kids every day, we can promote them. So that the second thing is I want to have people understand that these are so critical to life success. The third thing I want people to understand from my new book is the importance of the relationships that kids have for their own mental health. We've been talking about their academic health. Now their mental health, and we have a mental health crisis in this country with Uh, teenagers 42 percent in the last cdc um, center for disease control study showed that a lot of young kids had persistent periods of hopelessness and sadness this is affected by the environments that they're in in all places with their family with their friends with the people at school, with the people and out-of-school activities, with the people they meet online. And if we can begin to create relationships in those environments, and this is all about relationships. It always is about relationships and development. If we can begin to promote relationships in development where kids' basic needs to belong, to feel supported, uh, to have some say over their life, to feel that they're respected. Respect is huge. Dissing a kid is huge in adolescence, um, little early young children too, to uh, feel competent, to be challenged, to stretch and grow, to figure out who they are, to find ways to contribute back to the community. Those would be the basic Needs, the basic psychological needs. This is based on four decades of research under a theory called self-determination theory. We can begin to think about the environments we create for kids wherever they are in meeting those needs. I think we're going to help with their, not only their academic health, but their social, emotional, and behavioral health and physical health as well. So that's the third thing. And we're working on all of these things now. I mean, in between finishing the book last October, and now I've been busy, busy, busy trying to get these ideas funded so that we can take them to action. The fourth thing I want people to know is the notion of a possibilities mindset. This builds on the amazing work of Carol Dweck, who taught the world about fixed and growth mindsets, which is the belief that things can't or can't change, is instrumental to how we do. But that's one level. The second level is how we respond to a problem. Do we see it as a threat where we go into a we, they, fight or flight kind of notion, which we as a country are doing a lot of now? Or do we see it as a problem, a challenge? And those take place in different parts of the brain. I love the way Dan Siegel talks about it. Uh He talks about a yes brain and a no brain, and the yes brain is the part of the brain that sees it as a challenge, and we need we need to understand our own stress reaction so we can move it from a threat to a challenge and The third aspect of a possibility mindset is self efficacy but the belief that I can figure it out, I might not know the answer or it might take me a while might take a lot of people helping me, but I'll figure out this problem with my kid or with my job or whatever it is. And so we're teaching the notion of possibilities mindset now to people in a process where they can begin to live a possibility mindset. So that's the fourth thing that I want people to know from the new book. And the fifth thing is what is autonomy support. There's a lot of research that shows that when teachers or parents use an autonomy supportive approach to kids, and particularly if they have discipline problems with them, that kids do much better academically, socially, emotionally, all the things we care about. Autonomy support basically comes down to the simple idea of whether you fix the problem for the child or whether you give the child skills to learn to fix it. It's fishing, learning to fish or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, kind of in the old uh, metaphor. So I would like to see schools begin to... to adopt uh, schools, any place that works with kids, families, adopt more autonomy, supportive measures. It's even true. It's particularly true for kids who live in dangerous neighborhoods, not just don't do this and don't do that, but why you might do it. And then helping the child come up with solutions of what they might do. What are the skills that they could use to solve that problem? So those are five, five, there are hundreds of others, but five of the main things that I hope people get from my new book.
1: Now, you've mentioned the name of the book is The Breakthrough Years. Mm -hmm. And when
2: will it be released? The book is coming out March 26th. And um, it's called The Breakthrough Years because it's a make or break time. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, change is always possible afterwards. But the the skills that are being set into place and figuring out who we are and whom we want to become (laughs) during adolescence is so important developmentally. So it just came to me. Really, in listening to kids talk, that the name of the book was going to be "The Breakthrough Years." Should I say this? I was told that it was too positive a word to use in a book in a title about teenagers. You have to, you have to be a house on fire kind of. <laughs> this is the age of. This is the age of, you know.
0: I'm mental so health happy problems.
2: to hear this, though, because
0: I have a 17 year old mm-hmm. and a 21 year old, and of course, being an early childhood person, I put all my eggs in the early childhood basket and felt like, you know, I'm building this strong, crucial foundation. And then once they turn eight, uh, you know, I'll be there for them. But to hear that, you know, this is a crucial period. We still have influence. We can still build these environments. And the fact that I'm going to go get your book so that I can read (laughs) the end of each chapter with those suggestions, because, um, it it brings hope. And I think we need more hope when we think about children
2: in general. And they very much want, I mean, yes, they push us away, but yes, they actually very much care about the relationship. And when I ask again, a nationally representative group of kids about how important their parents were to them and whether they thought they had a good relationship with their parents, it was huge. And whether they think Mm -hmm. they Needed less time with their parents. No, if anything, they sometimes need more time, usually with men, not with, you know, but it's, they won't, they, it's, it's a time of huge parental influence. I mean, every neuroscience study shows that. And, um, you know, treated with not doing things for them, but helping them learn to do things for themselves, being autonomy supportive is the key having meetings when there's a family problem, that sort of thing. We have a process that we call shared solutions that we have in the book that talks about how to handle conflicts with kids that I'm for, I have used. I use in my own teaching, I use with my own family and passing it on. Get it
1: through Amazon or yes. how would
2: they? They can get it through anywhere that books are sold. Their right. independent bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere that books are sold.
1: Well, you certainly have given us a big boost today. And everybody that has listened to this, I'm sure has got a lot to think about over the next few days. And Ellen Kalinski, thank you so much for visiting with us today. This is Kathy Grace and Kenya Wolf saying we will be back soon.
0: Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. If you have an early education topic you'd like to discuss, let us know about it at edsup at olmiss.edu. The Ed's Up podcast is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.